Please be seated. Well, good morning. Um, my name is Ben Robertson, if we've not met, um, and I am a campus minister with Reform University Fellowship at the College of William and Mary. If you were with us last week, we looked at a passage in the Gospel of John where Jesus has a conversation with a man named Nathaniel, uh, where he meets him for the first time. Uh, this week, we're going to be looking at a, the next conversation Jesus has in the Gospel of John, a conversation not with someone he just met, but uh, with his own mother. Someone, uh, Jesus is about 30 years old when this takes place, someone he has known his whole life, and she has always known him. So let's look at John chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. They're at a wedding, and Jesus and his mother have a very brief interaction. We'll be looking at that a little, close, a little more closely today. John chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, they did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called to the bridegroom, and he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory there, and his disciples believed in him. Now let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this moment that happened, that your disciples witnessed and that they remembered together and recorded through the inspiration of your spirit for us to read and learn from yet again. And we need you desperately, just as that wedding feast needed your help. But we, we, we need it far more. So we ask that you would pour out your spirit on us now. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts that we would understand that we would see your glory even this morning. And like your disciples back then, would we believe? We ask this in your name. Amen. There's a show I love to watch on TV uh, that's about a dysfunctional family. Have you ever seen a show about a dysfunctional family? There's a couple of them. Uh, but in this particular show, the patriarch of the family is actually in prison for fraud. And his name is George. And he has a son named Michael and two other sons named Job and Buster, and then a grandson named George Michael. And Michael is visiting George in the prison uh, to discuss a problem that he is having with his son, George Michael. Not George Michael of careless whispers, mind you, um, uh, but his son. Uh, and he's having some issues with his son, and they're talking about, you know, Dad, what, what's your advice? And the camera's panning back and forth between the two of them throughout this whole conversation from George to Michael, George to Michael, and then they move from discussing George Michael to discussing 
Michael's younger brother, Buster, and the dad says, you know, whatever you do with George Michael, just make sure he doesn't turn out like Buster. And Michael says, yeah, you're right. What went wrong there, Dad? How did Buster end up the way that he did? And he says, I don't know. Maybe we were too soft on him. Maybe we coddled him. And then he says, I don't know. Maybe I just ignored the guy. And at that point, the camera's been ping-ponging back and forth, father, son. The camera pans back from the father. And there you see Buster sitting at the table. He's been there the entire time throughout this whole conversation about how we need, whatever we do, let's prevent George Michael from becoming like Buster. Um, fortunately, Buster hasn't been paying attention at all to the conversation. He looks at his watch, yawns, and says, we are just breezing right through nap time, aren't we? Um, why do I tell you that story? What in the world does that have to do with anything? Um, that, what, I love about the, what I love about that scene in that TV show is that the joke isn't what they're talking about. The joke is the context, right? The things that they were saying 30 seconds ago become funny once you see that Buster is there. Uh, well, in the same way, this little conversation that Jesus has with his mother is very strange, very peculiar, and honestly doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless you understand the other things that are sitting around the table. So what I want us to do is we're going to take a close look quickly at the actual conversation, and then we're going to kind of pan the camera around the table and see if we have any busters sitting there. Uh, look at verse 3. Let's just look at the conversation. The, the, they've, they've run out of wine at the party, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes to him, and he says, they have no wine. And Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, they're at a wedding party, a wedding feast, and sometimes these lasted several days, and they've run out of wine. Mary is apparently a friend of the bridegroom's family. It was the responsibility of the groom to provide uh, the drinks uh, for, for the festivities, and it would have been embarrassing to them, and she's apparently trying to help them out. And so she comes to Jesus, her oldest son, and says, help. Now, it's doubtful that she actually expected a miracle. It says that this was Jesus' first miracle. So it's not like she grew up watching him fabricate food and hand it out. She, she just wants some assistance. She wants him to help. But then look at how he responds. It's very strange, very curious. Woman. I heard some of you chuckle when we read it th through the first time. Uh, woman. Some translations gloss over this a little bit. They say, dear woman. Uh, but when you look at the translation, I mean, that's not just a different translation. That's just a mistranslation. The word dear is not there. And it's to, to make this a little bit more palatable to our ears. Now, I will say this, though. The reason those translators are doing that, adding the dear woman, is because in his culture, it would not have been perceived nearly as, as rude and insulting as it is to us. I mean, if I, you say that to your mother. Your mother asks you a question. You say, woman, what do you want? You know, it's not... <laughs> If you say that to anybody, that's just condescending and rude. But in the same way that we can say, hey, man, you know, that they, you would just use the word woman to address someone who was a woman. At the same time, though, there were ways of saying mom or mother that even typically 30-year-old men would use, and he doesn't use that. Uh, he doesn't use that here. It's, a, it's just the generic woman. It's not sexist or derogatory, but at the same time, it's... Um, distancing. And then he goes on, especially when it's coupled together. Woman, what does this have to do with me? This isn't my concern. Why are you asking me? It seems strange, somewhat abrupt. Uh, commentator D.A. Commentator Carson calls it 
a measured rebuke. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Again, not rude or insulting, but slightly distancing. General. And then he goes on and says, my hour has not yet come. What? What does that even mean? Your hour, I've asked you to, I told you they ran out of wine and you say, my hour has not yet come. She comes and asks her son for help in the midst of a party gone wrong and he gives a distancing, almost rebuking, cryptic response like this. What in the world is going on? Well, let's pan the camera around and try to find Buster. Uh, the first Buster at the table is the wedding. The context is that they are at a wedding. It's the place where he performs his first miracle. Now, let me ask you this. When you're in attendance at a wedding, what do you think about? Now, when I go to a wedding, I think about a lot of things, the colors, I'm noticing the colors. No, <laughs> guys don't notice. You know, women always ask that question, what were her colors? There were colors? I don't, I don't. White, I believe it was white, white dress. Um, what do you, you think about your own wedding day? If you're married, you can't go to a wedding and not remember that day when you stood there, me awkwardly and anxiously waiting for my bride to walk down the aisle in great excitement and the vows that we made. Or even if you're not married, uh, you think about what would it be like for me to be up there. You look forward to that hypothetical wedding day. You're thinking about it. You can't help it. Now, all through the Bible, a wedding or a marriage is used as a metaphor for God's relationship to his people in the Old Testament uh, particularly, we see it in the book of Hosea, where God and his people are like husband and wife. Hosea and Gomer, his wife, who is unfaithful to him, become a picture of God's relationship to his unfaithful people that he will pursue relentlessly. And he says, I will allure you. I will take you back into the desert where you knew me, and you will call me my husband. No longer shall you call me Baal, but you will call me my God. And you will be my people Paul famously calls the church the bride of Christ in Ephesians 5. And then just one chapter over from here, when John the Baptist is asked if he is the one who is to come, he says, I'm just a groomsman. The groom is over there. The groom is Jesus. I'm just the best man. It's my job to make him the center of attention. And then John, the same author who wrote the book that we're reading here in his book of uh, Revelation, pictures Christ's return to claim his people as a wedding feast, a wedding celebration exactly like the one that Jesus is sitting in the middle of where this first miracle takes place. So Jesus, as he says, what does this have to do with me? It's as if he's saying to his mother, this isn't my wedding. My wedding is coming later. My wedding feast hasn't come yet. What's the other thing at the table? Let's look for another buster. There's the wedding. But then the next thing that he says, the hour. My hour has not yet come. All through the Gospels, when Jesus talks about the hour or my hour, he's referring to not his glorification, but his humiliation on the cross. His hour of suffering, his hour of trial, his hour of being mutilated at the hands of man. Um, talking about his death. 
the hour has not yet come. Jesus frequently will say the hour is on its way, the hour is coming. If you remember in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is at Gethsemane. He's been praying, saying, keep watch, my hour approaches. And then finally, as Judas comes with the soldiers, he says, my hour has come, and he's taken away to be killed. So Mary says to him, we're out of wine, help. And he says, this isn't my wedding. It's not time for me to die yet. The hour, it's not time for me to die yet. Jesus, what are you talking about? See, Jesus, thinking of his bride, thinking of his wedding feast, is not just thinking about his bride, but also about the price he would have to pay to get her, about what it would cost him to have that wedding feast. Now, one of the beautiful ironies of the cross, the irony of the gospel, is that in his humiliation, he is glorified. He is raised up. So there is a nuance here to that sense of the hour. And it's almost as if Mary, in one sense, is asking him, Jesus, can you manifest your glory in a fresh way now? Can you bring your kingdom now? And he says, no, not yet. It's not my wedding. I have to die first. And this might shed some light on the sense of distancing, the abruptness of his language to her. He's not just grumpy or in a foul mood or being rude or a surly teenage kid, no offense. But he is so focused on the mission of what he is here to do for what his father has called him to do that he is stating, he is demonstrating to his disciples, even to his mom at the very beginning of his ministry. He has just gathered his disciples. He has not worked one miracle yet. But he is saying just before he does, no other agenda can get in my way. No other opinion, no other idea, no other ideology, no other motive, not even my mom's. Quick application. Sometimes following God's call means saying no to your mom. Notice I waited till my children went to children's church to say that. See, every mom in the room just grabbed her seat. But think about it this way, moms. Didn't you want your husband to hear that? Right? You know? But Jesus says it himself. He says, if, if, if a man will not hate his father and mother, he cannot come after me. I had a conversation with a former student on the phone this weekend, an alum of William & Mary. The hardest thing he ever had to do was tell his mom he had become a Christian because of how much she, uh, at the time, hated Christianity. They're working, they're working through it. But in other ways, there, there are times where it may not be like becoming a Christian. It may be like, in this case, a well-intentioned mom who wants you to have a higher standard of living. That's another issue I face with students quite often. If they want to go uh, to a difficult situation or live at a salary that is sacrificial for the sake of others, and very, very often, well-meaning Christian parents will say, but we raised you to live at a standard of living different than that. And sometimes following the call of God means saying no. Kids don't take, and take that and run with it. Okay, Just keep it, you know, keep it legit. But let's, let's flip it, let's flip it around. Sometimes it means saying no. Or do you ever feel like you're asking Jesus for something very simple and straightforward that makes a lot of sense to you? Like, we're out of wine, could you help? I don't have a husband and I'd like one. Could you get my son out of this problem? 
things aren't going the way that I would like them, could you fix it? And you're getting a distancing, measured rebuke, a silence, a no, or at least a not now. Jesus' own mother experienced the very same thing here in this text. His own mother, who raised him and brought him up, comes to him and asks him for something quite simple. And the answer, at least for the moment, seems to be no. Uh, Let that encourage you and make you rustle. But notice how she reacts. It's a beautiful example. She asks him for this simple thing. She asks him for help, and he responds in this sort of cool way. What does does she say? I know what I would say. Young man, I wiped your bottom at three in the morning when you woke up crying as a child and you don't talk, you know, come on, come help me out. That's what we would do, right? What does she do? She turns to the servants and she says, do whatever he asks. Do whatever he says. Just this complete, unqualified, trusting obedience Whatever he says, and she doesn't know what he's going to do. But why, why can she do that so freely? Because she knows Jesus. Because she knows Jesus and because she remembers an angel appearing to her when she was a virgin saying, you're with child. And she remembers bewildered shepherds coming to the barn where he was born to worship him at the beckoning of angels. Because she knows that Jesus is different. She knows he is special. She knows that whatever he does, it's going to be good, wine or no wine. She trusts him because she knows him. All right, let's pan the camera over to one more thing. That's finally the wine. The wine. Jesus turns the water into wine miraculously. Now, I want to speak to a couple of objections that people in the room may have to just the very mention of this, this miracle of turning water into wine. The first is just the objection to miracles, period. I was watching a debate uh, a couple of years ago between uh, Richard Dawkins, who's a very famous atheist, and John Lennox, who's also a a scientist at Oxford, and they were discussing the existence of God. And in his opening remarks, Richard Dawkins used this miracle as an example of how ridiculous it is to believe in the God of the Bible. He says, you know, I could believe in the God of the philosophers, but this man, John Lennox, believes in uh, God becoming a man and waving his hands over pots of water and suddenly tannins and proteins and the, the whole fermentation process is skipped in a matter of seconds and magically there's wine. Uh, that's absurd. It can't be tested. And of course, famously, David Hume, uh, far prior to Richard Dawkins, made the same objection that this can't be repeated, this can't be tested, this can't be analyzed, so it couldn't have happened. It would be silly to believe in such a thing. The problem with that argument, of course, is that it sort of begs the question of what a miracle is. The idea of what a miracle is is that it's a It's a one-time event that defies the laws of nature that can't be repeated or instantly tested. So the problem with that system of rejecting it is to say if a miracle did in fact happen, you wouldn't be allowed to believe in it. So if it did in fact happen, we would say, well, it's impossible, so it couldn't have. So we would be rejecting something that in fact did happen, which is a dangerous way to think. If that is an objection for you with Christianity, we understand. And the disciples understood. This is an amazing, radical claim. Um, but don't reject it just on the, on the fact that miracles simply couldn't happen because that is, in fact, the whole idea of a miracle. The second objection is very, very different, and that may be this. Ben keeps talking about wine and saying water into wine, 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 and when is he going to get to the part that says it's actually grape juice, right? Um, and there was actually, you know, there's, there's a, a school of thought that would, that would argue that. 
Um, but essentially, the, the short answer to that is th th this is this is very clearly wine in the context. The word that's used, there was a way to express non-alcoholic wine or grape juice, and there was a way to express wine. The whole context and the culture, what would be served at a wedding feast, was definitely um, wine. Uh, so now, bear in mind, these parties lasted for an extended period of time. Uh, Jesus wasn't, you know, calling for shots or, or something crazy. Um, and yet at the same time, he is very much, he is adding actual wine to a festivity. Uh, who cares? Why, why, why did you point that out, Ben? Why does it matter? Um, it is wine, but why? What's going on? Because she's asking him to rescue this party with wine, and Jesus is taking it one better. Because see, all through the Old Testament, wine, real wine, was a symbol of joy, of the blessing of God that would come when Messiah came. Uh, in the prophet Jeremiah and Hosea, and then in Amos 9, which I'll read to you in a moment, this picture of wine flowing liberally was this idea of blessing of God being poured out, of joy being restored to God's people. Amos 9 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, and the mountains shall drip with wine, and all the hills will flow with it. My people will plant their vineyards, and they will drink their wine. It's an amazing picture of the time of blessing coming where it's pictured as like the streams on a mountain actually flowing with delicious wine. And then Jesus... He takes these purification jars, 20 or 30 gallons apiece, purification jars that would be filled with water, and that water would be used for ceremonial washings, being symbolic of the cleansing of sin and uncleanliness. Uh, those jars are filled. It says he actually tells him to fill it to the brim, all the way to the top. This, the point is being made that there was a lot of it. A lot. I did the math. The typical size uh, bottle of wine that you can go and buy at the store. Jesus made something like 900 bottles of wine. Isn't that incredible? And it's good, it says. You know, the, the master of ceremonies is like, what is this? Why did, you're supposed to serve the good stuff first. And after the people have had something to eat and drink for a while and they're feeling a little loosened up and they don't notice the bad stuff as much, that's when you serve the, the bad stuff. But you went and served this last. Why? What is going on? The passage tells us that Jesus manifested his glory there with this first miracle. His glory was put on display and his disciples believed in him. This very first miracle where Jesus first manifests his glory, what does he choose to do? He chooses to say, this is what my kingdom is like, like this. 900 bottles of wine is what my kingdom is going to be kind of like. You long for a party to be fixed, I will do you one better. Because what you're longing for is more than a party restored, but is the life that I've come to bring, the true joy that all of us crave. And all of us do crave it. You long for joy. And you look for it everywhere. You long for this manifestation of glory. You, you ache for it. And you could think, of, there's so many examples of things that we do and ways in which we demonstrate this desire for joy or for happiness or for meaning or for glory. I, I'll just think of one from a few years ago. 
I was invited uh, by an organization called Tribal Fever uh, at, the, at the campus of William & Mary. They had just started and they needed a chaperone for a bus ride when we were going to play UVA. And I thought, I'll go. You know, they asked, asked me to go and I thought, this will be a good way. I'm a campus minister. I'll make some relationships with some, some students and we'll commiserate after we get creamed, right? Um, and, and it'll be a good time, a, a bonding experience. Well, this time that's not how it went. Uh, they were nice enough to give me a front row seat and I was on the very front of the student section uh, in, in Charlottesville and William & Mary won. Uh, they, they, they had this amazing victory and there was a freshman whose mom actually met uh, at the concession stand before the game named B.W. Webb who picked off his third interception of the day uh, around midfield late in the fourth quarter, returned it for a touchdown. It was... It was amazing. It was incredible. And uh, especially being at the front of the student sections. I mean, pe pe people are going nuts. The, the stadium is sort of ha like all the UVA fans are leaving and they're streaming out. But then there's like total chaos in the student section. Everyone going nuts. I'm hugging people I've never met. Everyone's high-fiving. We're jumping up and down, like just bouncing out of our shoes, going berserk. Why do we do that? Why do you get excited about sports? An 18-year-old took a piece of leather and ran down the field with it, and I'm hugging strangers. Why? Why? Because we were made for joy. We were made to celebrate. We were made to root for the underdog. We were made to see something amazing happen. We are longing for it. I tell you that story just to give you a little hint of what Jesus is trying to show us here. My kingdom is like this. And it's what you were made for. He's saying, uncork another bottle. Toss another burger on the, on the grill. The love of your life just walked through the door. It's a neighborhood block party. It's your wedding day. All rolled up into one. It's 900 bottles of wine for you. That's what my kingdom is like. Gallons and gallons and gallons of joy And it's a wedding feast that he died to give you. So my time has not yet come, but it did come. What does this have to do with me? It's not my wedding, but his wedding would come. Because the hour did come. And he drank a cup of suffering so that you and I could drink a cup of blessing. Listen to what he says to his disciples after they're, they're taking communion. This is in Matthew. And they've shared what we call the Lord's Supper. They've broken bread and eaten the bread and... He's held up the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And listen to what he says here. This is Matthew chapter 26. I tell you the truth. I will not drink again of the fruit of, this, of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He visited a wedding feast and he made wine. And there will be another wedding feast. And we will drink wine with Jesus. In fullness, because he is returning to bring this kind of joy, to bring us this cup, the cup of blessing, the cup of joy that he suffered in his hour that we could have at our own wedding feast. If we could just see it, if we could believe in it, it would change the, everything. Let's pray.